Hey everybody, it's Robert Polly here with the Seventh Avenue Project, a special online bonus segment. This is a conversation with the physicist Brian Green that uh, I never aired on the radio in its entirety. I just use little bits of it here and there. Uh, it's not one of the long, in-depth interviews that I normally do. Uh, didn't have time for that. Just got a chance to talk to Brian for about a half hour on the occasion of his uh, impending visit to our area, i.e. the Monterey Bay Area of California, to uh, present a film version of his story, Icarus at the Edge of Time. He was coming to Philip Glass's Days and Nights Festival, which took place a few weeks ago. Uh, Icarus at the Edge of Time was originally a kid's story that Brian wrote about uh, black holes, time dilation, and general relativity. Uh, as I say, it's been adapted into a movie with a score by Philip Glass, and Brian was coming to provide the live narration. That gave us a chance to talk uh, a little bit about the collaboration with Philip Glass, about the story and uh, the physics questions it raises, as well as Brian himself and uh, his commitment to physics education, to being a public explainer of physics, which he is very good at. Any chance I get to talk to the guy, I do, because uh, he has that rare ability to make the science understandable, very concise, very lively, without begging a lot of questions, without dumbing it down too much, without compromising uh, on the accuracy. So I hope you enjoy this banter. And uh, if you want to hear uh, Brian and I engaged in uh, a deeper, more systematic discussion of black hole physics, I'll include a link to a previous show we did on our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. Brian, um, I've been reading up on your background. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your career before we get into the subject of black holes and Icarus at the edge of time. I mean, you are a respected physicist, teach at Columbia University. Uh, everybody knows you are also a mediagenic uh, bringer of science to the masses. But you were also at one time uh, a star mathlete and also a black belt in judo. Is that true? Uh, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Pretty <laughs> much. pretty far back now. And you uh, you studied concert piano when you were a hem, a uh, Rhodes Scholar at Oxford? Yeah, that's overstated, too, but okay. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll vaguely nod and agree. <laughs> Could you make the rest of us feel better by confessing something you're really bad at, though? No, God. Talk to my <laughs> wife. The list will be absolutely endless. <laughs> Your fellow um, physicist star, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, wrestled in college. Um, I was wondering if you, with your judo skills, and he with his uh, wrestling, have ever uh, thought of taking it to the mat? Uh, we actually have. You uh, have? On two occasions, both in public arenas, and both times the brawl was broken up before the uh, clear victor could be named, so it's still up in the air. You're serious? Wrestling versus judo? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, the judo basically is wrestling. It's yeah. a Japanese form of wrestling. Yeah. Um, so, so they're actually quite similar. Uh, the, the one thing to bear in mind is, though, um, without any sense of uh, uh, judgment whatsoever, we are in slightly different weight classes. So the bout is not exactly fair. It's, it's somewhat tipped in, in Neil's favor. Yes, but judo is all about overcoming weight advantages, right? That is <laughs> within reason. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about Icarus at the Edge of Time. You and I actually discussed this um, years ago when it came out in its original form as a kid's book. Yes. I'm even remembering, like, hard cardboard pages. Yes, that's that correct. Right? 
uh, that could stand up to uh, toddler abuse. Completely correct. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and it definitely created a little confusion in the marketplace. I remember going to Barnes & Noble looking for the book, and they had it truly in the infant section, <laughs> even though it's not clear to me that there are that many infants who would follow a story that involved time dilation and general relativity. But, yes, the, uh, the book really was meant for, I don't know, kids 10 years and older. But, of course, books of that sort can easily appeal to adults. So it, it was written in a way that it had a broad reach. But the production of it was unusual in that it did make use of hard cardboard pages, which we do typically uh, associate with uh, infant books. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an updating. Uh, it is an updating of the Icarus myth. Everybody probably remembers that Icarus, uh, in the Greek myth, uh, along with his dad, escaped uh, from Crete, a prison in Crete, using some homemade wings. And Icarus ignored his dad's advice and flew too close to the sun, melted the wax in the wings, and f- well, crashed to his death. Right. Correct, yes. Your Icarus is a young man who also ignores Dad's advice and uh, is in a spaceship uh, and wanders eh, a little too close to a black hole. Right. uh, Experiencing what you just called time dilation. Um, You and I got into real technical detail about black holes last time, and I'll just refer listeners to that that interview if they want to learn more of the nitty-gritty about black holes. But I I did have a few lingering questions after our conversation. Let's Uh, hear them. First of all, just a tiny bit of background, and Brian, you just correct me if I go astray here. But a key feature of black holes is what's called the event horizon. This is a certain distance from the center of a black hole, depending on its size, where um, if you go past this threshold, uh, you will no longer escape, no matter how powerful your rocket ship, because nothing, even light, can escape from this gravitational pull once you're past this point, uh, which is called the event horizon. So... Um, you told me that once you pass the uh, event horizon, the roles of space and time are in some sense reversed, mm. and all the trajectories of time lead to the center of the black hole, which itself is the kind of endpoint, the end of time. Mm. Yes, uh, that's a lot to uh, that's a lot to get our heads around. But I'd love it if you could explain just a little yeah, further. It, it, it's uh, it's a hugely um, wild idea, but it comes right out of Einstein's math, the general theory of relativity, that he put forward as the way to describe gravity mathematically. He put it forward back in 1915, so we're now approaching the 100th year anniversary of this idea. And when you apply general relativity to black holes and look at the equations, you do in fact find that when you cross that edge that you referred to, the event horizon of the black hole, then right there in the mathematics, you can see that what you would normally think of as space, the trajectory, if you will, from the event horizon to the center that feels like a motion through space, the math really describes it as a motion through time. And that actually gives insight into why it's impossible to escape the black hole once you cross the event horizon. Because if I said to you right now, do not go to the next moment in time, <laughs> there's nothing you can do to stop yourself from going to that next moment oh, in oh, time. Oh, if only I could travel at the speed of light, I could escape it. Uh, well, even there, there are issues that come into play. But the fact that no material body can actually go at the speed of light even removes that as a strategy. Oh, darn it. So you cross the edge of the uh, event horizon, you cross the edge of the black hole, and your motion to the center is 
mathematically equivalent to your movement from one moment in time to the next. So in much the same ways you can't resist that, you can't resist going toward the center of the black hole. And indeed, the end point of that journey at the center, therefore, is really not a location in space. It is a moment in time, a final moment in time, if you take the mathematics to its limit. So the, the, the center of the black hole, this singularity, it itself is not in time anymore, right? Well, we have difficulty describing the singularity itself. A singularity in physics is really a euphemism for we don't know what the heck <laughs> is going on, right? So we have these equations, and we can follow the equations to just before we reach the singularity. But at the singularity itself, the math goes haywire. So that to us suggests that the singularity needs new mathematics, some kind of new description. Maybe quantum physics will be a vital part of understanding what happens there. It's still up in the air. There are many proposals on the table, but it's still up in the air as to what truly happens at the singularity itself. But roughly speaking, you can think of it as a final moment in time in that there's no clock that will go beyond that moment if some observer is wearing that watch. Well, I've often heard that, you know, there is this problem that the math goes kablooey when you try to study gravity at very small scales, which is part of the problem of yeah. studying a singularity. But what do you guys mean when you say the math uh, falls apart? Well, really, it's very similar to, you know, if you have an old-time calculator or even if you use one of the digital ones on your laptop and you perform some operation that doesn't make sense, like you take 1 divided by 0, your calculator will either have an E on it or it'll start flashing at you or it depends on how dramatic the program is. Maybe your computer starts to smoke. <laughs> That's the kind of operation which is mathematically illegal. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. Uh, you can't divide things by 0. Right, for instance. Um, and there are, other, there are many other operations like that. That's the simplest one, just to give a concrete illustration. And what happens in the equations of general relativity is something quite analogous to that. When you try to use the math to describe the singularity, you're forced into these illegal mathematical operations, which just don't make sense. Your uh, specialty is string theory. And yet, as a public educator, you're often talking about other things like black holes. Does your work actually overlap with that subject? Well, the beautiful thing about string theory is that it is an attempt to find a unified theory, put together the laws of gravity and the laws of quantum physics into one seamless whole. The nice thing about that is gravity describes all of the big stuff, from black holes to galaxies to the entire universe. Quantum mechanics is meant to describe all the small stuff, molecules, atoms, subatomic particles. So if string theory is unifying them all together into one mathematical tapestry, it kind of encompasses more or less everything, from the small to the big and everything in between. So that gives us license <laughs> to talk about anything. Where do you find time to actually do string theory? I mean, it's hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you've you've sort I, of divided I, your life, and yeah, I mean, I generally had a perfect strategy many years ago, where I would do physics during the day, and then I would do all these other things, writing books or other science for the public undertakings in the evening. The problem is, I then got married and had kids. And now I don't have evenings any longer. So it all tries to get squashed in during the day. And what I do now is I try to cordon off a couple hours each day that I won't think about anything else but the science itself. 
and then I use the other time to undertake these other things that I consider quite valuable, but of course they are a different sort of undertaking. Can you just switch gears and do that? It's hard sometimes, especially if you're in the middle of a book. If I'm in the middle of a book, which I'm not in the middle of now, it's very hard to turn off all of the lingering problems and puzzles that you're trying to work out. How do I describe this? Where do I describe that? Very hard to shut them off. Similarly, if you're deeply inside of a physics problem, it can be hard to to, to turn off the puzzles. But you kind of train yourself to focus your attention where it needs to be at a given moment, and it's it's not easy. Back to uh, Icarus for a moment. Um, we haven't talked about what you did next after creating the kids' book. Yes. Tell us. Yeah, oh, definitely. So even when I was writing the kids' book, I had in mind that I wanted it to be a performance piece. In fact, I wrote it first as a performance piece and just happened to show it to my editor, a wonderful man named Marty Asher at Knopf. And he read it and said, look, we should just publish it as a book, and then you can do any performance piece with it that you want. So that's the order in which it it turned out. And I always had in mind a kind of Peter and the Wolf-like presentation where you'd have a narrator telling the story, you'd have an orchestra playing music that was really part of the storytelling process, not just background music, and also a film that would be a visual representation, incarnation of what's going on. And that's what we did. We formed a partnership, the World Science Festival of nonprofit organization I founded, built a partnership with the South Bank Center in London, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra came in as well, Genoa Science Festival, and all of these organizations helped support the bringing together of Philip Glass, uh, two wonderful filmmakers in the U.K., Alan Al, together with me and also David Henry Huang, helped with the adaptation to the theatrical setting. And the music and the text and the visual just played off each other over a course of many months, and we created this production, this performance piece. And at what point did you think of Philip Glass as the composer? Very early on. I knew Philip. We had been on a panel many years ago, and I suspect he doesn't even remember the panel. I do, because indirectly it led to me meeting my soon-to-be wife. But (laughs) putting that to the side... He and I stayed in contact here and there over the years. And when I wrote the book, the story, I sent it to him and said, what do you think about creating a live performance piece? And immediately he got it, which was great. And he said, let's do it. And then we went out and found the, uh, the filmmakers to complete the, the triad, the three things that would be coming together. Um, so I imagine you got in touch with Philip Glass and you talked about the piece and what you kind of imagined it should do musically to accompany the story, right? Yes, yes, definitely. I'm curious Uh, about that because I know, you know, at least when young, he had a mathematics background. Exactly. I think he cares about science. So did you guys have some discussions about black holes? It was kind of an amazing thing. We We had a creative meeting and everyone was there. We also had a a blackboard just in case, and Philip did send me to the board. I mean, he really wanted to know what is a black hole mathematically. How do you describe it? What really happens there? What would the phenomenon feel like to the boy himself who goes to the black hole? Uh, On and on, and every time he was trying to synthesize the science with how he would portray it musically. And in the process itself, when he sat down to writing the score, 
I would get phone calls sometimes at like 11.30 at night. I remember one time in particular, and he said, Brian, I think I understand what I'm going to do as the boy is right at the edge of the black hole. I'm going to do this and that and the other thing. Can you come down now and listen? And I was like, yeah, of course. It was like this amazing New York moment. I'd get a call from Philip Glass at late at night to head down to his studio. So I did, and he played me various things, and I reacted. I was sort of unabashed perhaps a little bit too forward. At one time, he playfully punched me in the arm and said, if we ever work together again, please bear in mind, I will not listen to you. You know, so it was all, it was all very good. And, and he really tried to incorporate the scientific ideas in the score so that it would really mean something. It would really reflect the ideas. One of the the strange things, and I don't know if he, he attempted to capture this in music, but one of the really, really strange things about falling into a black hole is that from the outside, uh, and again, Brian, please elaborate on my very, uh, you know, my fumbling layman's description here. But from the outside, as you fell into the black hole, an observer would see you pretty much stop at the event horizon. Um, and you, on the other hand, would keep traveling toward the center without even noticing that you passed the event horizon. Yeah, all that's perfect. It's right on track. Um, would the observers see you if they could see you? And I know there's problems with that, but if they could, would they see you sort of die? Would they see you splatter on the event horizon like a bug on a windshield, or what? Would... No, it would be more. It'd be more like. Well, first of all, you you turn very very red, and your your light would. <laughs> leave the visible part of the spectrum. But putting that to a side, imagine that they somehow can capture that light and recreate what's going on. They would see you as if you're in a slow-motion movie. So as you got closer and closer to the edge, the horizon of the black hole, your arms would slow down and your head would slow down, and finally you'd kind of freeze, like a freeze frame in a film. Because the notion of time from the outside perspective is very different from the notion of time according to the person who is falling in. One of the wondrous insights of relativity is that time is very much in the eye of the beholder. People do not agree on the rate at which time elapses and the amount of time between one event and another if they are moving relative to each other or if they are experiencing very different gravitational fields. And you're right, according to the person falling into the black hole, Nothing special happens at the horizon, we think, according to classical general relativity, I should say. Quantum physics brings in other subtleties that have created a wonderful sense of confusion in the state of physics right now, which is very fruitful. But putting those cutting-edge developments to the side, according to Einstein, when you cross the edge of the black hole, you don't feel a darn thing, and time just continues on its merry way. Um, does, does Philip's score try to capture that duality? He does, yeah. So he played with a variety of different techniques and ultimately settled on two musical lines that are vibrating, if you will, at very different frequencies. One is vibrating ever more quickly toward the edge of the black hole. You can think about that as you will. The, from the perspective of the person falling in looking back, if the world is seeing them go slow, then they are seeing the world go fast. So from their point of view, it's sort of a high, fluttering sound. And then there's also a very deep, slowly vibrating instrumental line, which is the view from the person outside looking toward the person falling, seeing them slow down. So he has those two lines playing off of each other as the boy goes to the edge of the black hole. 
At that moment, when you cross that threshold, when you pass the event horizon, the point of no return, the world splits into two realities, um, two very different realities. One is seen from the outside, one is experienced from the inside. Um, is there a paradox there that has to be dealt with in some way? Well, those are deep questions, which right now, I should say, physicists continue to struggle with. There was a time, maybe 10, 15 years ago, when we thought we understood the answer to your question quite well. And there were simply two regions that needed to be described using the equations of general relativity. We understood what physics would be like in each. We understood how to stitch them together into one coherent story. But recently, there have been some issues raised as to whether there are really two distinct realities. Could they be the same reality somehow just described in very different language is one of the things that people discuss. Could it, in fact, be maybe that the inside of a black hole might not actually even exist? People <laughs> propose that there might be kind of what we call a firewall surrounding the edge of a black hole, which would prevent anything from getting inside. In a real sense, there wouldn't be an inside to the black hole. So these are questions at the forefront, and we do not know the answers to them. Thankfully, in the story that I've used here, the boy never actually crosses over the edge of the black hole's horizon. He does smartly stay on the outside of the black hole, where we pretty much do understand what's going on. Ah, but he still pays a price. He still pays a price. <laughs> and, uh, and the price, I mean, not to be a spoiler, but right. he thinks, according to his clocks and his experience, that he only spent an hour or so on this joyride around the edge of a black hole that he did against his father's warning. But because an hour for him is in slow motion, according to everybody far away from the black hole, it turns out that the rest of the world, the outside world, ages much more than an hour during his joyride. So, in fact, when he comes back, it's not an hour or two later. It's actually 10,000 years later. And this is something that comes right out of Einstein's general relativity. It's not a science fiction story. It's a fictional story that invokes real science. So when the boy returns, he is not dead, as in the original myth of Icarus, which always bothered me. You challenge authority and you die, mm -hmm. according to the traditional mm -hmm. myth. Here he challenges authority, but he has to come back and acclimate to a new reality. Um, of course, we're experiencing a, a much milder version of that story ourselves, because we're on Earth, we're in a gravitational field, not as strong as a black hole's, but that's slowing our clock down, our aging rate, uh, relative to things that aren't in gravitational fields, or, or are in weaker, I should say, in weaker gravitational fields. Uh, we're aging less quickly than someone would in outer space. Yeah, that's right. Um, but that's an effect that would really only be um, noticeable in extreme situations. That's right. You're talking, you know, billions of a billions of a second or something like that, depending upon the details. But, you know, these effects have been measured, so they're not hypothetical. So you can measure the rate at which time elapses, say, at the top of the Empire State Building compared to the rate at which it elapses on the ground at the bottom of the Empire State Building. And very fine measurements have established that clocks in those two positions are not ticking at the same rate. And that someone who works at the, on the top floor is actually getting older faster than someone Correct. who works on the bottom floor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, you know, it's billions of seconds is not something you're going to notice, but it's a real effect. And the point of a black hole is it can accentuate that effect. Brian, uh, one of your pet projects these days is the World Science University. Yes. Uh, can you describe it in a couple sentences? 
Sure, World Science U is an attempt to remake this whole movement into online digital education and try to move it away from trying to copy what we traditionally do in the live classroom and create a new, more potent online educational experience where you aren't just judging the quality by how close it comes to what you'd find, say, at Columbia or at Harvard or at MIT, but you're judging it on its own digital terms. So we have an enormous amount of animation, interactive demonstrations, a whole slew of hand-holding in solving problems and going through exercises. So it is in my view and in the view of many students who have taken it, a move in the direction of what digital education can ultimately be. Uh, I wanted to get a taste of it, so I enrolled. Uh, and Great. Started, How'd you do? How'd I do? Well, so far, so good. Uh, I had this very good teacher named Ryan Green <laughs> talking about relativity, um, which I have to say I'm cheating because I've done a lot of radio shows on relativity. But still, I, what always impresses me about you, Brian, having read your books, having talked to you a couple times, having now seen you sort of lecture and explain uh, things at World Science U, is um, you take the extra time to repeat things from different perspectives, from different angles, to answer a variety of questions that all point ultimately to the same kind of truth. But with a realization that for a lot of us, uh, simply whizzing through one explanation, no matter how accurate it was, wouldn't be enough. I mean, you somehow know that. Your writing does that, too. Uh, how does a guy who's actually super knowledgeable and adept like you uh, understand the way the rest of us think enough to um, to relate to us? Well, really, the, the, the way that I teach and the way that I write is totally aligned with how I learn myself. I never feel fully comfortable if I understand something only through one pathway, one avenue. I want to be able to take some piece of knowledge and twist it at every angle and see why it's true from that perspective or that perspective. So you're right, I typically do take a given idea and explain it one way, twist it, explain it a slightly different way, because A, some people will resonate well to one or another explanation, but B, if you have the patience to go through all the explanations, you wind up just having a far deeper intuitive sense of what's going on, and you're not, in some sense, hanging all of your understanding on one technical line. When you have a collection of explanations, to my mind, it becomes far more visceral. Well, I have to say, you know, from my perspective, you're absolutely right, and I appreciate it so much. I have to wonder, having talked to you about how much of your other life you've had to give up, your, your private life probably, and your, your physics life, what's in it for you? Well, there is a great deal of gratification in getting um, an email from a kid that just got even just a few days ago who was on World Science U and has decided that physics is the direction that he wants to go, even though he was dissuaded from even studying science by a teacher in school. So it's those kinds of stories just multiplied by, you know, tens and the hundreds and thousands from folks who have read a book of mine or watched a television show that makes it feel as though this wonderful set of ideas that's usually locked inside of the academic world is brought out to the larger public in a way that makes 
people excited and makes them feel inspired and makes them want to know more. And that, to me, is, is hugely gratifying. Well, Brian, uh, thanks again. And uh, let's give the, um, the URL, the web address of the World Science University. Yeah, it's worldscienceu.com. And uh, it's free. Anybody can go there. And there's a variety of experiences from short commitments of just a minute or two to these longer courses that we were just describing. So people should jump in and, and take a look. Free. That is the operative word. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Thanks again, Brian. Really a pleasure to talk to you again. My pleasure. Thank you. And that there, folks, is uh, the extent of my latest conversation with Brian Green. As I mentioned earlier, if you are interested in a deeper dive into black hole physics with Brian, you can uh, turn to the interview we did a few years back. I will link to it from our website. And uh, by the way, I hope I didn't confuse any of you listeners when I said during this most uh, recent interview that um, by moving at light speed, we might escape the inexorable march of time. I didn't mean to imply that uh, anything unfortunate enough to find itself inside the event horizon of a black hole could get out by moving at light speed. That is impossible. But actually, I was just uh, remarking on the fact that um, things that move at light speed indeed do stop the clock. They don't move forward in time. All of their motion is directed into the uh, spatial dimensions of four-dimensional space-time and not along the time axis. Uh, you want to learn more about that whole idea of four-dimensional space-time and our motion through it? Uh, good place to start, again, is my earlier interview with Brian, which you can find on our website. Our website being 7thAvenueProject.com. So long. <laughs>